You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks very much for joining us. Sophie is on assignment today. The Bank of Canada delivered better news for Canadian families already struggling with the rising costs of pretty much everything. The bank is holding off on another interest rate hike, at least for the time being. Richard Zussman reports. Putting the brakes on interest rate hikes. As finance minister, I fully respect the independence of the Bank of Canada as it delivers on its mandate to return inflation to target. The Bank of Canada announcing Wednesday the benchmark rate will remain unchanged at 5%, but consumers are still feeling the pinch. We are still looking at a high rate environment, so a lot of households who are struggling now will continue to do so uh, in the few uh, coming quarters. And even an interest rate that uh, cuts that we're seeing next year are likely to be gradual. And while those gradual cuts are likely, the Bank of Canada not ruling out increases either. One main factor in keeping the rate steady is a dip in consumer spending. For the past 18 months, rate increases have piled on to cool a red-hot economy. Borrowing rates climbing from 0.5% back in March 2022 to five points now. A hope that this may finally help with stubborn mortgage rate increases. Now that we didn't have one today, we're also um, awaiting maybe a little bit of a decline in fixed rates, which is another welcome relief. Premier David Eby wrote the Bank of Canada a letter recently saying the rate should remain consistent. Doug Ford in Ontario and Andrew Fury in Newfoundland joined in on those calls. And the province is not done. Calling on the bank to keep things consistent or drop the rates. It's our responsibility to to raise the concerns that we have, which is these uh, dramatic increases are having huge impacts. It's actually hitting families. But economists question whether the government's letter writing campaign is making any difference, arguing requests like this impact the bank's mandated independence. It's sad that they believe they can score some political points on the ignorance of some of the voting public uh, that may believe that these letters have some influence. Influence or not, British Columbians are still in for a rocky ride with a long road to travel before getting back to the goal of 2% increases. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Inflation and the rising cost of living are hitting everyone and post-secondary students are no exception. Grace Key has the latest on a new survey that shows the cost of higher education is putting more strain on both students and the bank of mom and dad. Instead of taking the next step to independence, more university and college students are finding it difficult to break free from parents because of rising costs. No money <laughs> going to school and also trying to afford somewhere to live is very hard. So I'm at home and it's okay. And your parents pay for everything, so that's, that's always a plus. The reason I am not dorming is because I kind of live too close to dorm, so it would be kind of a waste of money. Um, that's what my mom would say. A recent Ipsos RBC poll surveyed 1,000 post-secondary students under 30. 36% of those questioned in 2013 said they would be living with their parents while going to school. This year, it's jumped to nearly half at 47%. I work part-time, but like it's not enough to you know, support a living by myself, so I still live with my dad. I'm a server, um, but even that is barely enough to keep me going. Students aren't just getting financial help from their parents. Many assume their parents will take care of their financial needs and many will turn to their parents to help develop future financial goals. I don't expect to live alone until like I'm, I'm done uni. 
Probably Basically, until I'm able to until I'm able to work like a full time job. Part time jobs are never gonna get me a place around here, at least. So you could be living with your parents for a while. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years ago, 29% of those surveyed said they were getting financial support from parents. That's now jumped by 14%. More graduates are also saddled with a financial burden. In 2013, 30% expected to finish school with up to $20,000 in debt. Now it's 45%. After I graduate, I'm going to move out. Yes, that'll be my breaking point. <laughs> yeah. As for RESPs, one of the best ways families can save for post-secondary school, Community Savings Credit Union, in partnership with Angus Reid, has found there is a huge RESP gap between students from low- and high-income families. Grace Key, Global News. Another vehicle has been snatched from a driveway in Maple Ridge, and it was all caught on video. As Kristen Robinson reports, thieves seem to be targeting a specific style of vehicle. So I parked my truck here on Monday afternoon and everything was fine until about 2.41 Tuesday morning when it was picked up by camera that the truck was taken at that time. Welcome to Maple Ridge, where in the darkness of night, Leslie Clausen's visit to his brother-in-law's was a goodbye to the truck he's owned since 2009. Well, he didn't even try the door handle. He just immediately punched the lock and jumped in and began hot-wiring it. Forget about gone in 60 seconds. In this real-life Grand Theft Auto, Clausen says his 1999 Ford F-350 disappeared much faster. From when he got into the truck to when he left, it's probably, what, half a minute? It was pretty quick. Seemed to know what he was doing, right? Yeah, that's the one that, that he's driving away. Because... The Clausens reported the truck theft, which happened just north of the downtown core, to Ridge Meadows RCMP. She said this is happening on a almost a nightly basis here, and sometimes the vehicles are recovered and sometimes they're not. Ridge Meadows RCMP would not agree to an interview, but say they are seeing a minimal increase in the theft of older model vehicles. And as this video shows, Ford pickups have been targeted because they can be stolen quite easily. I wish I'd had a kill switch in the truck. I told myself that this was my last truck that I was going to buy. I was going to keep it till I wasn't driving anymore. Now in limbo, dealing with ICBC, Clausen has a message for whoever has his ride. You know, if he's finished with it, I wouldn't mind getting it back. Just come back, park it here. I'll be happy. <laughs> Kristen Robinson, Global News. And according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, auto theft costs Canadians more than a billion dollars a year. The most commonly stolen vehicles nationwide are at number five, the 2013 to 2019 Toyota Highlander. You've got the Honda Civic. Rounding out the top three, the 2015 to 2020 Ford F-150 series and the 2016 to 2021 Lexus RX series. And of course, the number one most stolen vehicle is the 2016 to 2021 Honda CRV. Another stark reminder of the dangers posed by fires at homeless encampments, not only for their residents, but for firefighters as well. As Cassidy Moscone reports, crews encountered an explosive situation when they rushed to an urban wildfire in Burnaby this morning. Burnt out beside a homeless camp, blackened trees and bits of debris, all that's left behind from an early morning fire in Burnaby. 
Uh, we arrived on scene, it was heavy black smoke. The people there were burning off all of the plastic in order to get to the copper wire to take it to the recycling depots. The fire started just after 7am in the camp off the Central Valley Greenway just east of Douglas Road. Firefighters arrived to the smell of plastic burning the forest on fire. There was actually qu quite a challenge because there was magnesium involved too. Magnesium is water reactive. So when water actually hits it, the oxygen from the water actually enhances combustion and chunks of uh, metal from the magnesium fly off it. Police attended, no one was injured and no criminal investigation is underway. Firefighters say they're being called out to more and more fires within homeless encampments like these. It's a real concern for them, especially being amongst the trees and in these warm, dry conditions. We've had a few homeless camps where they're, they're actually quite elaborate and there's weapons involved. Uh, the last one we had in the East Burnaby uh, that was quite significant, we actually had someone who was actually, who died as a result of the fire. Sometimes people kind of are driven to do, take desperate measures um, because they don't have a lot of resources and maybe put themselves or others in harm's way. Advocates say investment is the solution. Things like affordable housing, things like more shelters, more long-term sports for mental health and other resources for folks. Over in Vancouver, park rangers moved out 150 propane tanks from an encampment in Vanier Park on Tuesday. The city announcing late Wednesday a two-week deadline for campers to move out. Cassidy Mosconi, Global News. The clock is ticking on the fate of the encampment at Millennium Park in Prince George, with the official opposition now weighing in on the issue. The city of Prince George has decided to clear the camp of tents. Housing Minister Ravi Kalan is critical of the city's decision. He says his staff has been meeting with city staff since June to discuss viable and safe locations for the unhoused occupants at the park. However, BC United MLA Mike Morris says he shocked the blame was put on the municipality when it's Kalan's responsibility to provide appropriate support. The mayor and council are showing leadership here. And the province has not shown leadership on this file anywhere in the province. We have people languishing in, in feces and in garbage and in dangerous conditions, um, which is making it more dangerous for the people that live in the neighbourhoods surrounding these, these tent camps. And the province has done little to address that. The city has given unhoused residents until this weekend to clear out. Victoria's Village of Tiny Homes, which has been in operation for two years, is closing. The shelters were built to provide homes for vulnerable people during the pandemic. The units were meant to be a temporary solution until more permanent housing could be found. The project was given extensions because of delays in finding more permanent shelter, but advocates say enough homes have now been found, so the project is shutting down. But they were hoping that someone else would take it over and move it. There's very much a need for it. Um, it's just um, this community was never meant to host it permanently. So we were wanting other neighbourhoods to kind of pop up, show their interest, see how successful it's been and adopt it into their neighbourhoods. And, and that, unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Organisers say it took only six months between the conception of the project until residents were able to actually move in. Now the same cannot be said for a similar shelter project in Vancouver, which is now considerably behind schedule. Only some of the tiny shelters that were supposed to be open last year are finished. 
As Kamal Kuramali shows us, that's raising concerns about safety as winter approaches. Tiny shelters, 100 square feet each with room for two people, and now facing delays. How do you feel seeing that there's more delays again? Pissed off. For the city's homeless, the delays could be the difference between life and death. I do not think that they know any, any circumstances that come with the winter in the tent. People do die from the cold. Back in February of 2022, City Council approved a two-year experiment to build 10 tiny shelters on Terminal Avenue near Clark Drive. The idea sparked by a company in Washington state called Pallet that have shelters ready to go at a moment's notice. Knowing that there's these systems out there, it does frustrate me a little bit that we see folks still living rough in our city. Vancouver City Council then allocated $1.5 million towards its own project. The shelter that's currently here is the Luma Native Housing Society with council now allocating $1 million to the group to operate these new tiny shelters. It was supposed to open last September, then delayed to spring of 2023, and now it's postponed yet again with only six out of the 10 units ready to go. It's pretty sad that this city can't get their act together. The city says there have been delays related to additions to scope of work, site condition challenges to overcome, and the hybrid model of modular and on-site construction that have required increased coordination. I think you got to remove all the barriers. Look at why it's taking so long. Local politicians asking other levels of government to help cut bureaucratic red tape. Because the reality is, is that housing is not really the purview of the city of Vancouver to provide that kind of level of housing support. That is but BC Housing deflected our questions back to the city, all the while the city's homeless. It's taking forever to build. Growing more anxious over cooling temperatures. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Encouraging signs the wildfire season is winding down. And for the hundreds of British Columbians who lost their homes and property, an offer of disaster funding from the province to get cities back up and running, as many of them get their first look at what's left. That's next on the News Hour. After that, I just, whenever I saw stuff, I'd buy it or pick it up. A B.C. man who's collected tens of thousands of concert posters. And the one he's still looking for later on the news hour. Also elevating the game, Canada's men's basketball team does something it's never done before at the FIBA World Cup. That's coming up later in sports with Squire. Right now, though, nearly three weeks after being forced to flee ahead of that huge Bush Creek East wildfire, Residents of several communities in the North Shushwap are being allowed to return home. As Aaron MacArthur reports, at the same time, we're getting a clearer picture of the damage to the area's buildings, infrastructure, even the landscape. Cars, businesses, homes. The damage is overwhelming in every direction for kilometers. Nothing but scorched earth. Three weeks after fire forced people to flee, some are returning. What the hell? Why didn't it burn that piece? If they have anything to go back to. Double wide on top of a full foundation. Um, I had a big shop out there. What's left of it anyways. Scotch Creek lost its fire hall and community center. Firefighters lost their homes. The firestorm that blew down the mountain into the communities along the Shuswap was like nothing experienced firefighters had ever seen before. Describing trees exploding like matches. 
and a shower of embers raining down kilometers ahead of the flames. We did what we could, but there was no amount of resources you could throw at this to stop the, the, the fire that was coming. And then we had it uh, a wall of flame coming up behind our hall, and the next step was moving to an evac to a safe zone. So, Describe the wall of flame. How high was it? Oof, I couldn't even tell you. There, it was like there was no end to it. 176 homes have been destroyed by the Bush Creek East Fire, 50 more damaged. Homeowners were given staggered re-entry plans Wednesday, but the situation remains fluid and dangerous. Burned out trees remain standing, and fire burned deep into the ground, leaving unstable, unmarked dangers. The number of homes destroyed could potentially go up. We haven't been to every area yet. We haven't been able to access every area due to the safety that's uh, in, in some areas. So we expect that... Um, that, that we will possibly see some more numbers. The evacuation order has been downgraded for a majority of residents in the fire zone. The order remains in place for everyone who lost their home. Crews still need more time to assess those properties. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The Fraser Valley Regional District says six homes were lost to the Kukupee Creek Fire. The district says 27 structures were destroyed by the fire, but most of them are described as recreational or maintenance buildings. Residents in the evacuation zones are now being allowed to return home, but they are being warned of poor road conditions, danger trees, and other post-fire hazards. Back on August 18th, hundreds of properties in the Fraser Canyon were evacuated as the Kukupee Creek fire exploded in size and jumped Highway 1. And a new plume of smoke over the central Okanagan caused some panic for some people until the wildfire service cleared up the cause. Photos and video of the smoke above West Kelowna sparked a flurry of social media activity, with many people not aware it was a controlled burn in the Hidden Creek area. Officials say people will have to get used to it. We will see more of it, um, and you know we need people to understand that it is part of uh, securing the community from this wildfire that is gonna be with us likely until winter. The McDougal Creek wildfire is still considered out of control. On Tuesday night, some Westside Road residents were under evacuation order or who were under evacuation order were told they could check on their home and retrieve some belongings. But just hours later, a handful of properties were excluded from that list. Officials saying that area is still unsafe. And while B.C. continues to battle a relentless wildfire season, Unprecedented drought conditions are making conditions worse. Officials say cooler temperatures are helping stabilize fires in some areas. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, significant rainfall is what's really needed to stop fire growth. As wildfires continue to ravage British Columbia, burning a record number of hectares, the provincial government is urging continued vigilance noting there is room for some optimism. I want to offer a cautious glimmer of hope. Historically, mid-September marks the conclusion of the peak wildfire season in British Columbia. We are in the home stretch, but we are not yet in the clear. So far this season, 2.2 million hectares have burned and hundreds of homes have been lost. Full extent of the damage remains unclear. 3,800 people remain on evacuation order and 34,000 people remain on evacuation alert. BC Wildfire warns it's not over. We still have a lot of work to do and I think that's the key to stress here is that 
we may see another ridge of high pressure uh, come over the province in the next 14 to 21 days, two to three weeks. And so we may not be finished in terms of fire growth. Adding to concerns, the ongoing drought is extreme. Metro Vancouver homeowners are reminded that stage two water restrictions remain in place and lawn watering is banned. Water reservoirs are at 56% of maximum, but there's concern dry conditions could persist. Our reservoirs, our drinking water resources have to last us for that period of time until we get significant rain again to, to replenish them. Of course, significant rain could bring additional problems. If it comes too quickly, the next battle will be flooding. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this drought. Keith, some strong language from the minister today emphasizing how serious this problem is. Yeah, and I think it was very deliberate choice of words by Emergency Management Minister Bowen Ma today. She's been talking about drought and, and fires, of course, for weeks. But I've noticed attending and covering these briefings on a weekly basis, Chris, the focus is increasingly shifting away from the fires as things start to ease up there and increasingly towards the ongoing and historic drought situation. We're at the worst drought ever in B.C.'s history. 80% of our water basins are at level 4 or level 5 drought, level 5 being the worst. And Bowen Ma, the minister today, again, choosing her words very carefully and make people get their heads around the fact we're on a whole different level when it comes to our problems with drought and the lack of water. And she likens it basically to another natural disaster on the horizon. I want to emphasize how significant the drought that British Columbia is facing is right now. It, it is unlike any kind of drought conditions the province has ever faced and, in my opinion, truly is a, a sleeping giant of a natural disaster that we are challenged with right now. The so strong language. And here are the three scenarios Bowen Moss says are likely to play out regarding our draft. There could be too little water over the fall. That would extend the drought into next year. We don't want that. Or, as Catherine pointed out in her story, too much water too quickly could lead to serious flooding because the ground is just not uh, able to absorb serious amounts of water. Best case scenario, doesn't mean it's going to happen, extended gradual rain increases over long periods of time that gently recharge our reservoirs. So fingers crossed that third scenario is the one that plays out. No one knows which way it's going to go. But given the record what's going on south of the border in the United States and our ongoing situation in B.C. that's going back for months, I wouldn't count on that third scenario being, being true. I think we're in for a heck of a tumultuous fall, if not next spring, and look out for another bad wildfire season next year. Big change for an area that's known as a rainforest. It's quite amazing. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks very much, Keith. Just ahead, Yellowknife evacuees return home. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to everyone back home. What it's like to be back after weeks away. And the poster controversy that has a group of Kalistani separatists threatening to sue the Surrey School Board. Still plenty of leftover volume over here at the Lionsgate Bridge tonight, heading south out of north and west Vancouver after clearing a crash at the south end of the bridge deck. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert care for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Lionsgate Bridge. After weeks of living in limbo, 20,000 evacuees from Yellowknife are finally making the journey home. And it's not easy. There are checkpoints and people are being told to have 72 hours worth of supplies as backup. Global's Sarah Comadina reports. 
Jared Tordoff is ready to get home to Yellowknife. He's about to embark on the 14 and a half hour drive from Edmonton. We're probably going home to some very moldy bananas and uh, dead house plants, but you know, a home, so. While some are hitting the road now, others are deciding to wait, trying to avoid all of that traffic. There'd be too many crazy people on that road, so no. So we're just gonna go halfway to Peace River and then continue Friday to Yellowknife. In Yellowknife, people also arriving by plane. At least 450 evacuees were able to get home by air Wednesday. It doesn't look the same. Um, the fire smarting has changed the, a bunch of the roads, the highways. So it's going to be an adjustment period and uh, people aren't going to, it's going to be a different city than people left. For Kieran Test Start, it's a relief to see people finally back in the city. He stayed behind to support the firefight. We've been at it for three weeks, 12-hour uh, shifts, so pretty exhausted. But, you know, the, the thing that keeps me going is, is that thought of one, getting this done, getting this work done so, you know, I can see my family again, I can see my friends. While basic services are up and running, the hospital isn't fully operational, and it will take a month to get it up to speed. Anybody with health concerns, like dialysis, chemotherapy, people in the late um, term of pregnancy and a few other health conditions, can't come back yet. An evacuation alert remains, but the fire is being held 15 kilometers from the city. And with the relief of heading home, the trip will also rekindle painful memories of fleeing. I drove here and that was tough. Uh, seeing fires on both sides and, you know, communities completely burned down. That's, uh, it really affects your mind. Sarah Comedina, Global News. The Surrey School Board is facing possible legal action after cancelling a permit for a pro-Calistan event this weekend. The board says the issue is imagery on a poster promoting the event. But as Janet Brown reports, event organizers say the board has it all wrong. The Surrey School District says it has decided to cancel a pro-Calistan event that was set to take place this coming Sunday at Tamanawa Secondary in Newton. The cancellation stems from what is being called a concerning promotional poster showing an AK-47 assault rifle being stabbed by a pen above an image of the school. We are nonviolent and we are piercing the India's violence through a pen. So how can we be the one who are promoting violence when we are fighting against the violence? The poster also had the faces of Telwinder Singh Parmar, who was found by Canada's Commission of Inquiry into the investigation of the bombing of Air India Flight 182, of having orchestrated the attack, and Hardeep Singh Nidjar, who was murdered outside a Surrey temple in June. As for the images of the two men... We do not advocate, incite, provoke or promote any kind of violence, and we really have our hearts out to the victims of Air India. The school district has issued this statement. Promotional materials for the event features images of our school alongside images of a weapon. Despite repeated attempts to address the issue, event organizers failed to remove these concerning images. Our agreements, policies and guidelines, including those for rentals, support our district in creating a safe environment for our community. Six for Justice say they plan to launch legal action against the Surrey School District for violating freedom of expression, for maligning the Sikh community and the Khalistan referendum campaign. 
And they add the poster has since been changed. We immediately addressed it and removed those pictures. The event is still going ahead, but at a different venue, at the Gurdwara, where Hardeep Singh Nidjar was gunned down. Janet Brown, Global News. Just ahead, Vancouver's new state-of-the-art fire hall. Can I just say this place is awesome? <laughs> Vancouver's mayor isn't the only one impressed by a building that can help save lives and save the planet. Also, a Calgary company takes a huge step with its high-tech insoles. Good evening, and traffic is once again moving well across the Portman Bridge after clearing not one, not two, but six earlier problems. Still seeing some leftover volume through Coquitlam on the approach. Today's Lotto 649 gold ball jackpot is $56 million, plus the classic $5 million jackpot, two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Portman Bridge. It was the big unveil today for a newly refurbished Vancouver Fire Hall that sets a new standard for design and functionality. Ready? That's Mayor Ken Sim dropping in for the official reopening of Fire Hall Number 17 on Knight Street. It's been given a complete makeover. In addition to being a training fire hall, the facility is designed to be a communication hub in the event of a disaster. It's also built to reduce energy and water consumption, featuring solar panels on the roof, helping it lay claim to the title of Canada's first carbon zero fire hall. Nearly 60% of Vancouver's carbon pollution comes from burning gas to heat buildings and hot water. Now the mayor and fire chief also on hand to dedicate a special room at Fire Hall 17 to a retired firefighter. Welcome everybody to the Brian Boland Band Room. Ready? One, two, three, pull. Here you go, Brian. 88-year-old Brian Bolam was a Vancouver firefighter for 33 years. He retired back in 1994. He joined the fire department band in 1959 and two years later was encouraged to apply for a job with the department despite not meeting the physical requirements at the time. I was a little short and they sort of looked the other way a bit when I got interviewed and hired and uh, so it worked out. I made it and I ended up being chief training officer so I actually hired a couple of shorter guys than myself to accommodate not being the shortest on the job. So, Bolam says a highlight of playing trumpet in the fire department was a performance for Princess Diana and Prince Charles when they visited the city. In Health Matters tonight, a made-in-Alberta device designed to help prevent serious foot issues with or in people with diabetes. Calgary-based Orpix SI sensory insoles fit inside any shoe to detect signs of injury early. People with diabetes often develop nerve damage in their feet and can't feel pain. That's why foot wounds can become so infected and result in amputation. These insoles contain high-tech sensors that send signals to a smartphone. It's sensing all day long. And what it's looking for is instances where there's too much pressure in an area over time because that, that pressure ultimately will lead to tissue damage. So we identify those states and then we just queue through an app to say it's time to move. The data is also monitored by a team of nurses who can work with the patient to care for their feet. 
The insoles are now available by prescription in Edmonton, Calgary, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, and soon in a couple of Alberta First Nations as well. Coming up, preserving BC's musical history. This is one of the coolest. A concert poster collection you have to see to believe and their plans for these works of art. Also coming up in sports, the Canucks' Brock Besser, hoping to return to form as a goal scorer and looking forward to a fresh start this season. Gentle, sustained rain is what we need to end this drought. No sign of it, at least in the short term. Christy's got the details for us now. Christy? We certainly, as we headed into uh, September, we started sort of we sort of saw spits and spurts of rainfall, but it's extended, as you said, gradual rainfall that we really need to be able to soak into the ground and really make an impact on the drought that we're seeing. So, yeah, we saw a few showers today, a few lightning strikes, but and higher relative humidity and lower temperatures certainly have been good for the wildfire scenario. But in terms of making an impact on the drought, which we need, uh, we just don't have that in the forecast. So look at those temperature shows temperatures near seasonal right now but we are going to see another small ridge of high pressure develop and that means for those of you in the interior a warm-up on the way into the weekend and as you can see no rain in the forecast also as far as we can see. So we're back to sort of a ridge of high pressure that's going to bring some warmth, not extreme warmth, but some warmth and dry conditions, that's for sure. In terms of smoke, we're expecting the extensive smoke in through uh, the Prince George area over towards the BC Peace River area, uh, mostly clear through the Caribou, although some areas like Prince uh, Quinell may see local smoke. Here's a look at your forecast across the region. So dry, as you can see, and we are expecting mid-20s across the southern interior. The warm-up will be on Friday. Friday and into Saturday. We are not going to see much of a warm-up though across the south coast. Overall over the next several days we're expecting to remain near seasonal and the next chance of rainfall will be on Sunday where we would see a few showers. Still a little uncertain as to how much we would see but at least a few showers but as we talked about earlier it's that extensive uh, um, sort of period of light rain that we really need. Bowen Island Ferry for you. Thank you to Rafael for that great shot. You can see the clouds off in the distance. Chris. Back to you. Thanks. Love it. All right. Thanks very much. Christy Squire joins us now with a look ahead to what's coming up in sports. What you got, Squire? Well, uh, the question is, is this the year? Is this the Canucks season that the old Brock Besser returns? You know, I think you all know I'm not going to sit here and promise you anything anymore. I just got to take it day by day and improve myself. He's back, and he says he's in a much better headspace heading into this season. Glad to hear it. Also coming up, the authority on concert posters, cataloging BC's eclectic music history and the made it so fun. While the rest of us want to stretch out summer, some of the Canucks are skating on ice. Well, I think the way it is with hockey players now, it used to be they just go into the summer and hang out, do things, and then skate themselves in the shape. Not like that anymore, and especially with what Rick Tockett said at the end of last year, everybody's got to be in great shape. And a lot of them are practicing out at UBC on their own, things like that. Now, a Brock Besser trade has been anticipated for a while, but like sitting in the forest 
Waiting to see Bigfoot? It's never come. Bigfoot is still in hiding and Brock Besser is still in Vancouver. And he's glad he still is. And the Canucks themselves would be a lot happier about it if Brock Besser, the one we saw early in his years in Vancouver, the one who turned opposing nets into red light districts, makes a return. He'll try again. The Vancouver Canucks are hoping to see more of this from Brock Besser this season, and so is Brock. Besser finishing last year with just 18 goals, the second lowest total in his six full NHL seasons. You know, obviously the last couple of seasons have been tough, and you know, I think you all know I'm not going to sit here and promise you anything anymore. I just got to take it day by day and improve myself to you know, not just you guys, but you know, my teammates and, and the city. So, Besser ended the season doing something he failed to do at the beginning of it, scoring goals. 12 of those 18 pucks that found the back of the net came in the new year. This after failing to score a goal in the Canucks' first 11 games. It was a frustrating start to the season, one where Brock was still grieving the loss of his dad, who passed away a few months prior. It was definitely a tough year in more ways than one for Besser. You know, last year was uh, definitely a hurdle mentally, and um, it was a little different, um, obviously. You know, you're still dealing with, you know, that loss of my dad, so... Um, we figured it out and, you know, we kind of got over that hump, I feel. I feel, you know, you've come to, you know, I, I think, you know, come to the, the piece at first and you sit there and wonder, you know, why certain things happen. But I think I've come to that piece and our family is, you know, I think this summer was really good and we've all kind of found that piece. So, um, you know, in that regards, it's a, lot, it's a lot better. I feel a lot better mentally. I feel really motiv motivated right now and I'm really excited to get camp going. Brock reiterated how happy he is being here in Vancouver. That trade request from last season long since rescinded and now hopefully forgotten about. He also recommitted himself to getting in the best shape possible by working out with a new trainer this summer. This is from someone who averaged just over 17 minutes of ice time a game last year, his second lowest total since his rookie campaign. You know, I think we're all just sick and tired of, you know, having these expectations and not following through. And, um, you know, Todd came in here and, you know, he, he pushed us even even though we were in the playoffs. He kept pushing us each and every day. And um, it's important to, to come in better shape. And, um, you know, he told us all that the guys that were returning that you know, camp's going to be really hard this year. So um, he warned us. So we'll, we'll see how hard camp is. When it comes to players not born in the U.S., Canada has more NBAers than any country in the world. So it stands to reason that sooner or later, that Canadian talent will show itself on the world level. And at the World Cup of Basketball, Canada is now in the Final Four for the first time ever after beating Slovenia in the quarterfinals this morning. Shea Gilgis-Alexander has been huge for Canada, but they had to dispatch Luka Doncic, one of the best on the planet. But we did, despite Doncic having 26 points. There's some of the reasons why. R.J. Barrett. Right to the rack. Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who's Shea Gilgis-Alexander's cousin, spin move, drops this one in. It was 50-50 at halftime. Another Alexander-Walker two-pointer, this time with the dunk. To the third quarter we go. Canada got off to a fast start. Shea Gilgis-Alexander going coast to coast from St. John's to Tofino. 
31 points, 10 rebounds. R.J. Barrett. I'll take that, thank you. And I'll dunk it for the Holman native land. 80-71 after three, and then Kelly Olenek of Kamloops with the nice pass. One more look. Uh, getting back to Doncic, he did not have a good finish in this game because he didn't get to finish it. With about six and a half minutes left, he thinks this should be fouled or a foul. Yells at the ref a few times, two technicals, and he gets an early shower. How about one more? Olenek. No, Olenek, yes. Canada gets Serbia on Friday. The uh, Seattle Seahawks won't have to face the L.A. Rams' best receiver in the season opener on Sunday at Lumen Field because Cooper Cup is not going to play for Los Angeles. He still has a sore hamstring that he hurt a month ago at training camp. Blue Jays in Oakland, nobody else was, but they were there to take on the A's, but this didn't go so well. Kevin Smith, who's been in and out of the minors this year, I don't know how this gets over the wall, but it does, and Oakland beats Toronto by the score of 5-2. to two. There you go. I was watching the game yesterday, shocked by how many empty seats there are. In that oh, stadium. don't be shocked. Yeah. In 2025, they want to be in Vegas. Yep, that's right. All right, just ahead, a music enthusiast comes up with a brilliant idea for his collection of tens of thousands of concert posters. Squire's got it next. Jordan Armstrong's working tonight, joins us now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, major fee increases are on the table in Vancouver. If you own a dog, you'd pay more. If you run a business, you'd pay more. If you park on the street, you'd pay more. The fee increases recommended by staff are meant to offset next year's property tax hike. We'll have the numbers and reaction to them at 11. Also tonight, the end could be near for the Jericho Pier, why the park board is being told it should be demolished instead of repaired at 11. Chris? All right, thanks very much for that, Jordan. Squires here once again, and a great story tonight of a guy who collects, of all things, concert posters. Well, concert posters are art. Mm -hmm. People like to collect art, but art isn't always in a frame, yeah. painted by somebody. Sometimes it was there to promote a show. And Rob Frith has a whole bunch of posters, and now he knows what he's gonna do with them. This is one of the coolest. Bob Massey. The six-foot six door poster. This is Rob and Robin, and they're working on a book together about these. First time the door is played here. Concert posters from across the years and across the province and the artists who created them. This is from 1966. Which, when you say it fast, doesn't seem all that difficult until you realize just how many posters Rob Frith has. I really don't have any idea. I mean, it's tens of thousands. Rob, who owns Neptune Records, is one of the biggest collectors of concert posters in the world. I think this is around 63, 64. The book isn't just about seeing the posters telling you who played where. It's about the local artists who made the posters. This is kind of what put uh, Vancouver posters on the international map, I think. This is a Bob Massey poster of the Grateful Dead. It's the kind of thing that you'd hang in your house and it, and you'd, you know, you have to look twice to see whether it was a piece of art or whether it was a poster. But included in this book will be posters by artists 
who are not famous. There's also other amazing artists in Vancouver that, that aren't as well known. Or aren't known at all. And aren't known at all. And, and there's posters we have with no names on them. So I have no idea who did them. And that's who we're trying to find. I love this one. It's just so wild. It looks like somebody just, I don't know, having crazy thoughts in their head. And... Years ago, I remember like going through my f file drawers, looking at my posters and thinking, I'm the only one who gets to see these things. And then my friend Robin recently was a writer. She said, we should do a book. And there is one poster Rob would love to get in the book if he can find it. The one from one of his very first concerts. I don't know if that was a, a copy of the poster or that's just a, a newspaper ad, but I've never actually seen a, a, a poster for it. And I don't know anybody else that has. So... Um, I'll pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's going through their closets right now. That ever, yeah. ever had a anybody, anybody whose dad or grandfather, mom or grandmother were Jefferson Airplane fans, yeah. quick, start going through the old drawers and old closets. Yeah, well, yeah. let's hope it's out there somewhere and you'll update us. I, I yes, hope if you, I will if I find one, it. yeah. Very cool. All right, some sunshine ahead for us as we head towards the weekend on the backside of the midweek here. That's right. So nice. Uh, sort of next couple of days for the kids' first week of school and a hot one on Saturday, which is nice or hot for this time of year anyways. Chance of showers on Sunday, not much rainfall, and there's still some uncertainty around that. So stay tuned. In the meantime, enjoy the sunshine for the next couple of days. Will do. Thanks very much, Christy. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Hope you have a great night. See you back here tomorrow.